Hello there. Welcome to Positive Changes, a self-kick podcast. I'm your host, Shelley F. Knight. I'm a former nurse and clinical hypnotherapist, term podcaster and author of Positive Changes, a self-kick book and Good Grief, the A to Z approach of modern day grief healing. In each episode, I aim to share my clinical, spiritual, and personal experience to help you feel inspired to create your own positive changes in life. Fear not, it's not just me. Each week, I will bring on a new guest and they will share their authentic story of positive change and the tools that they used on their journey. So if you're ready to be inspired, let's go. This third episode brings you the infectious positivity of Johnny Crowder. Johnny has walked the walk, talked the talk, having lived with anxiety, depression, OCD and schizophrenia, and he has created continual positive change after positive change. You know, every few months I had a recurrence of the lowest point in my life and I could feel it coming like, you know, I'd have the deepest, darkest two months of my life where I'm thinking about ending my own life every day. I'm completely reclusive and shut in. And then I go into a period of mania and I'm like, I'm out of it. This is great. And then I feel that rumble like, oh no, I'm about to have the worst two months of my life again. And it happened like that in cycles for a decade. So it's difficult to tell somebody like, when they ask what was the hardest part, I'm like, the hardest part was every two months for 10 years. It like kept happening like Groundhog Day. Please do share this episode with anyone who could benefit from Johnny's wise words and gentle humor around mental health. So today on the show, we're joined by Johnny Crowder and he's a mental health and sobriety advocate, founder and CEO of Cope Notes, TEDx speaker and musician. So hello there, Johnny. Howdy. So bless you, you've got quite a story to share because I know you've been sort of like the brink and back. So please do share your story of positive change. Well, there's no really neat way to button it up or sum it up. So I'll share as much as I can and then maybe we can dig into it after. But I grew up around drugs and alcohol and abuse. And over time, I I falsely learned that I wasn't valuable, that my opinion didn't matter, um, that I would never become anyone noteworthy. I would never accomplish anything. So I I learned all of these negative, um, false ideas about who I was and my, my role in a family, my role in a social circle or in the universe. And it took a long time to get over that. So those feelings and ideas manifested as depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, PTSD, um, big long list, OCD especially, big long list of diagnoses. And I started treatment in high school. I went to college. I went to university for psychology and I wanted to become a clinician. Um, But then I got involved with peer support and doing public mental health advocacy. And that kind of changed my whole trajectory. So if you will, if you were to listen to my band when I was 16 years old, it was songs about being angry, songs about, you know, getting revenge. And then you listen to my songs now and they're about like persevering and consent and sobriety and trying to find the silver lining. And it's just, 
you know, I look at myself and think, you know, right now I have positive mental attitude tattooed on my whole torso. Like it's huge PMA. And I saw a photo of myself recently. Um, this is, this is going to sum up my whole life story. When people ask me, what's your journey? So I have PMA tattooed on my whole torso right now. And I found a photo of myself on Facebook memories from high school. And I was wearing a shirt that said negative attitudes. And I was like, wow, that's the, that's the difference. I look at myself 10, 15 years ago as someone who was angry and confused and sad. And now I still feel pretty confused a lot when I think too hard about something, but I'm not nearly as sad and angry as I used to be. You've really been on a journey, like, you know, cause you're a mental health advocate and some people do it cause they think it's the right thing to do, but you're one of those people that I absolutely love because you've walk the walk talk the talk and know it do you know what I mean like it wasn't just like I felt a bit depressed Shelley you've had depression anxiety PTSD you've had trauma drugs alcohol you've had the whole lot which you know helps you now and helps others but it is quite a journey bless you honestly someone brought up the other day something that I haven't considered which is that so I often say that I feel like I didn't have a choice like mental health advocacy was the avenue that allowed me to turn something negative in my life into something positive. And someone said, no, you did have a choice. You could have just continued perpetuating that cycle. You could have chosen to bury your head deeper in the sand. You didn't have to help anybody with this. And it, it kind of rocked me because I think a lot of people who do work for other people, um, you know, no matter how you serve other people, if you care for a loved one or you work in, you know, hospitality or whatever, there's part of you that thinks you have to do it or that you're supposed to do it, but really that's your instinct. You can turn your back on your instinct at any time. Like all people do that all the time. So choosing to go with your gut and trust your instinct and leverage your experience to create something positive. I always forget that that is a conscious choice. It's not automatic. Yeah. Cause we do make choices all the day, all like every single day. And it's whether or not we make a positive or negative one. And I love the fact that, you know, now you've got PMA on your tummy, but in the past you were sort of like would have brandished a negative yeah. top, you know, and sang about anger. And I, I love it. I mean, you know, when you say you still have sad and angry days now, which I think is brilliant because, you know, we're not encouraging people to make positive changes. It's not all like jazz hands. <laughs> you can yeah. live happily ever after. <laughs> do you know what I mean? It is sort of like, <laughs> It's Just, not all jazz hands. It's not that. though, is it? Do you know what I mean? Well, maybe it is. Maybe I've got it slightly wrong, Johnny. Who knows? But <laughs> you know, I do have duvet days and I do just think, oh, leave me alone. I'll be over here with my cup of tea, my biscuits, you know. But we're making choices all the time. And I love just how different yours are. So you've been on this journey. And what was your lowest point? Um, it's hard to pick. There so I had um, without getting too technical, there are a couple different kinds of bipolar. So some, um, the bipolar that's more common that you like see on TV and in magazines and stuff is the type that goes like this. It's like up, down, up, down, really fast swings. So you're like having a great moment. And then the next moment you're having the worst moment of your life. I had some periods of my life that were like that, but most of the time it was, I think it's called long cycle. I forget the actual term for it. Um, but it's where you'd, you'd be really high, like manic for days or weeks. 
So you're not really sleeping a lot. You feel like you can conquer the universe and that you're like, oh, I'm going to invent a new mode of transportation. You stay up real late and you're like working on blueprints and stuff, even though you know nothing about transportation. Um, so I had periods like that, but then I would also have really deep low periods. And those periods sometimes didn't just last days. It was like weeks or months, or even I would be in like a couple year long bout with like a deep dark depression where I'm sleeping literally all day. And then I'm not really exercising. I'm not really eating or I'm eating way too much. I'm not responding to friends when they try to contact me. And I, it's so difficult to put, to point a finger at like, oh, that was the lowest part. Because to be frank, it was like, you know, every few months I had a recurrence of the lowest point in my life. And I could feel it coming. Like, you know, I'd have the deepest, darkest two months of my life where I'm thinking about ending my own life every day. I'm completely reclusive and shut in. And then I go into a period of mania and I'm like, I'm out of it. This is great. And then I feel that rumble like, oh no, I'm about to have the worst two months of my life again. And it happened like that in cycles for a decade. So it's difficult to tell somebody like, when they ask what was the hardest part, I'm like, the hardest part was every two months for 10 years. It like kept happening like Groundhog Day. That is just, I want to say exhausting. Do you know what I mean? Whether you're up high creating things and think you're absolute genius or two <laughs> months of absolute lowest, it just sounds exhausting. And when you said decade, I was like, that's one hell of a cycle, isn't it? Yeah. I think... You know, I'm all about positive thinking, but I think even if I was getting those cycles for 10 years, I think I would be at the brink of suicide. Like you said, you went because you're just thinking, if I make that positive change and I create that marvelous thing, I've got this negative to come. Even though you're trying to make a positive change, you've still got the negative to come. Is yeah, that-, that that was something that I would run into and something that actually, that was one of the factors that contributed to me considering suicide which is really unfortunate is that every time I did make progress. So let's say I engaged in a social activity with one of my friends or something. And I'm like, wow, this is really good for me. And this is so healthy. And I, or I would like start setting an alarm and waking up at a certain time or start eating healthier. And I'd be like, yes, this I'm freaking taking back my life. I'm grabbing my life by the horns. And then inevitably it, even if things were going well, I would kind of feel that feeling of like you know when the tide goes out right before a big wave yeah I would think oh no even my progress will get swept away when this next wave of depression comes so it was it was defeating even in a victory I felt defeated if that makes sense no absolutely when you were sharing I was like when you're in your positive you almost got an impending sense of doom almost <laughs> yeah do you know what I mean? This seems really almost like an oxymoron. Like even in your good days mm-hmm. and your good mindset, it's kind of the negative is going to come. And is it going to come because of the PTSD, because of the depression, the anxiety, because of chemicals? Why, why does it come back? Well, I'd like to think that if I knew for sure, I would stop it. But I, I think it's kind of everything you said, right? Like, not only did I do I clearly have chemical imbalances in my brain, like there's a biological component to all of this. That's something that when I was earning my psychology degree, I was blown away by learning, wait a second, there's like a true 
chemical imbalance. Like this is, we're talking raw science. It's not, I'm feeling sad, so I had some ice cream. Like there's a real <laughs> chemical reaction happening. There's a biological basis for this. And mental illness runs in my family. So I was learning about how genetics play a factor and how um, childhood trauma can play a factor. So not only all of those things, but also as I was in treatment, I would try a new kind of treatment or I would switch from one therapist to another. I would wean off of one medication and onto another. So there were a lot of factors and all of that was taking place inside of a human life, which is one of the most volatile things we've ever seen. Like girls break up with you, you have to move, your friends stop, like get involved in new social circles and then you pursue new hobbies. Like there are so many different challenges. And I think layered, like if you take the biological, like chemical scientific component of what was happening, and then you take the circumstances around treatment, and then you take the human level of just constant change, those three things together, they created this cycle where every day I woke up and I thought, you know, it's really unfortunate. I didn't wake up and think, wow, this could be the best or worst day of my life. I would think this could be the worst day of my life. And that's a framing issue that I didn't start working on until much later in life than I should have. And how did you come to the realization? Was that from the talking therapies or something else? Well, um, a big part of it was therapy and medication, but a lot of it was around um, logic. Like I started reading about philosophy and um, really thinking critically about like logically how much of this situation that I'm feeling, this feeling that I'm feeling, how much of it has a sound logical basis and how much of it is maybe my emotion that one of my mental illnesses is taking that emotion and amplifying it to the point where I can't hear my logic. So I would say the biggest, one of the biggest shifts for me was being able to say, um, being able to switch from saying, I'm making a big deal out of this to saying, you know, my anxiety is making a big deal out of this. Once you can separate yourself from your diagnosis, you're on your own team again. You don't feel like you're fighting yourself. You're like, no, it's me versus my anxiety and I can do something about it. So people listening that are really relating to this, how can they start to separate their anxiety, which is all consuming and they believe it to be real. I don't think that's the right word, but you know, as you say, it's a choice. How can they start today to sort of break it down and bring it back to themselves? So this is going to sound silly, um, but it's helped me a lot. One thing that I would do, actually, I still do this, full disclosure, and it does help. I talk to myself in the mirror. And there's something really powerful about seeing yourself speak. So if you are talking to yourself in the mirror and you say, let's say you have a thought. So I'll give this as an example. Um, I've broken my nose several times. And after I broke my nose, I would think my nose looked so crooked and so ugly. And I was so focused on, you know, every time I'd walk into a room, I'd think everyone's looking at how crooked my nose is. Everybody knows that I broke my nose before. And so what I would do is I'd look at myself in the mirror and if I said anything negative about my nose, I see myself say that and I go, that's not me. Johnny Crowder doesn't say mean stuff like that. Like Johnny Crowder wouldn't say that to somebody else in the mirror. 
he wouldn't say that. So seeing yourself say something negative, it kind of rattles you and say, well, that's not Johnny Crowder saying that that's somebody else. Who the heck is bringing that thought into my brain? So if you have trouble separating yourself from your thoughts or your emotions, talking to yourself in the mirror, it's like a really jarring, like it shakes you awake and it makes you realize, oh, that thought, seeing that thought come out of my mouth looks like somebody else. So let me keep talking until I say something that sounds like me. You know what I mean? I think that's really powerful. I'm aware of like the mirror work from Louise Hay and she gets, well, anyone, but it's kind of always been aimed at women that I've used it with. And it's just to look in the mirror and tell yourself that, you know, I love you. And I'm amazed that so many women can't do it and they can't even say, I like you. So you have to start by sort of saying, hello, yeah, <laughs> good morning. And it's like everything, you know, the good and the bad, we have to work through it. But I think mirror work's really powerful because we do like, you know, even, you know, getting ready in the morning, you might think like, oh God, I'm looking older. Oh my God, I've not slept much. Mm-hmm. And you just start that self-critic. And, you know, the world is so judgmental. So, you know, you've got to start the kindness with yourself. So I think that's just a brilliant example. You're saying like, you know, I wouldn't speak to someone else like that. Exactly. Why am I speak to myself like that? So I think mirror work's really powerful. And I also, this is going to sound silly too, but I do this all the time. I call myself buddy a lot because that's that's something I call other people like, you know, a waitress or, you know, a dog. I'll be like, what's up, buddy? Good morning, buddy. Um, So if I call myself buddy, it fosters this feeling of like familiarity and friendliness, kindness. So if I feel myself being harsh towards myself I start to call myself buddy even when when I make a mistake I'm like come on buddy and then saying buddy makes me it like triggers something in me that makes me act as kind to myself as I would be to somebody else I love the word buddy I don't use it enough I'm thinking hang on that's got a really cute sound to it you kind of like buddy (laughs) yeah it's hard to be a it's hard to be a jerk when you say buddy yeah (laughs) It's jerk proof. We're all going to try it. When you spoke about your childhood, bless you, that there's so much going on around it. And you said that, which I thought was amazing, like you got all these false ideas of who you were and what your worth was and your esteem and all things like that. So how do you move on from these false ideas? I'm sure so many of us carry things, whether it's money blocks, opinions of ourselves that aren't ours to carry. It is the childhoods and the parents and the teachers and the neighbours and anyone that's passing that wants to be negative. How do we move on from the false ideas and find our truth, our true self? Dude, so that's something that I'm still doing now. And I think like, I'm fine if this is the hill that I climb for the rest of my life is like unlearning that, that's worth it. I want, I'd rather Clyde, di- I'd rather die climbing that hill than live at the bottom of a different one. You know, like I grew up, so for example, I think you brought up money And money has been a huge issue for me because I grew up thinking that I wasn't worth anything. If something is a dollar, I don't deserve that. So now as an adult, you know, you have to pay for gas for your car, you have to pay insurance and, you know, you have to pay for your rent. So it becomes more and more challenging because you lose more of an ability to like skimp out on yourself. You have to say, well, you know, if my rent is, $800 or $1,000, you're like, man, 
you know, I don't think I'm worth $800, but I have to pay $800. So what does that say about what I think I'm worth? So you, I think it's a lot of cross-referencing, like even, like I said, paying for a tank of gas, it's like you, you realize, you start to realize that you're a person too. And one thing that helps me a lot, there's another trick that I, I hope people use, um, is when I'm in a room, I will, or I don't even have to be in a room, but when I feel myself being like low on my self-worth or low on my self-esteem or thinking that I'm not valuable, um, kind of like feeling subhuman, like less valuable than somebody else, what I'll do is I'll ask myself a very simple question and it always works. I ask myself, how many people are in this room? And let's say I'm in a room with two other people. I say, how many people are in this room? One, two, three. Yeah. There's three people in this room. And being able to answer that shows me that I am at least one person. <laughs> and if you, if you actually believe, if you go through life believing that you're less than one person, you'll fail every time you try to show yourself what you're worth. But if you constantly check yourself and say, I am at least one person, I am worth one person. There's three people in this room, two other ones, and then myself. If you view yourself as an equal, it is tremendous what you'll be able to do in the way of providing for yourself, showing yourself kindness, because the idea of buying yourself dinner might seem ridiculous to someone with self-worth issues, but the idea of a human being eating dinner is not ridiculous. So it can kind of help you get over that logical hurdle. I think that's really powerful because if you say we do tend to count people, but don't include ourselves. And I think when we do have those really depressing days, we often feel invisible and it doesn't help mm. if we don't even see ourselves, does it? We just kind of consolidate in the pain that's already there. So I love how you bring that in. And also, because you're saying like, I'm one person and I love that because this has got... <laughs> This is probably an issue for me, but I can't stand the term. It might be an English thing, but they say my other half. So when you're in a relationship, mm. you'll go, oh, he's my other half. And it's like, you are whole. You were whole before you met them. You'll be whole if they ever leave you. You are yeah. not a half. So I love that one person. Yeah, That's absolutely awesome. love it. So you've gone through this journey. And as you say, you're on this journey, you'd rather die climbing the mountain, being at the bottom, which I thought was so powerful. I hope it's a song lyric, one of your cup songs. Um, <laughs> yeah, I should write that down. Right. <laughs> so you've gone through, you've take, done the talking therapies, you've done the medication. What else have you used? So depends on how nerdy you want to get. I read a lot of books. Obviously, I went to school for psych. So if you have the bandwidth, if you have like, I had a scholarship, um, so my college was paid for basically by the state. <laughs> so I was like going to school and I was like, I might as well learn about psychology because that's what I'm going through. So I would say for anyone who's going through something similar, I'd encourage you to educate yourself as much as possible. So watching TED Talks about mental health, reading books about mental health, listening to lectures or podcasts, um, you know, really try to understand how the brain works and why, why stuff is happening the way it's happening in your brain. Cause that there's something so empowering about that where you're like, you know, there's a point when I was younger where I would, I would hallucinate and I would not know what the heck was going on. But when I started, I went to school for abnormal psych. So I was learning about schizophrenia and I go, wait a second, my brain 
is just fabricating stimulus. Okay, so this is not a real voice that I am hearing. This is not a real person that I'm seeing right now. And I can tell the difference. Once you feel armed with that, you don't feel crazy. Feeling crazy is when you can't tell if something is real or not, at least in my experience. That's when I felt, quote, crazy. And I'm, I'm careful to use that word. But <laughs> Um, when I felt crazy was when I couldn't tell if a hallucination was real or, or, or a hallucination. But when I started being able to say, no, why would, and this is a real hallucination that I used to have, um, that wolves would be inside of my house, the house that I grew up in. And I would, I would attack it with logic. I would say, now, hold on. How would a wolf get inside of my house when it's locked? And let's think about it nobody noticed there were multiple wolves in the house. They were so quiet that nobody heard them. And my house isn't that big. So where could they have hidden? And over time, you start attacking it. And that was only because um, I had done so much reading about my diagnoses that I started feeling like I knew enough to be dangerous. You know what I'm saying? So yeah. definitely educating myself. And I think also surprisingly, um, prayer was really big for me. I was so anti-faith my entire life. Um, I thought I knew everything. I thought I was my own <laughs> God and I nobody was smarter than me. Um, and when you think like that, or I'll just say for myself, when I was thinking like that, if you're infallible, then you having a hard time is is dangerous for everybody. But if you understand your role, if you, if you have humility, if you understand your limitations, then you having a bad day is okay because the fate of the universe is not depending on your infallibility. So it's okay to be confused or sad. So I think starting to understand my role and my, my space, my sphere, my sphere of influence um, really helped me grapple with some of the bigger problems. Because when you are your own God and you have a bad day, that means God's having a bad day. Your whole life is hanging in the balance. But if God is not you, if God is outside of you, then that means that if you're going through something, it doesn't affect the fate of the universe. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And I love that. I love both those points, the faith and the education. I was kind of smiling when you're done about educate yourself because it takes me back to my nursing days where people were given a diagnosis and they're like, well, just do what you need to do, doctor. And I used to be like, no educate yourself learn about yeah. your condition make informed choices you know decide the right way forward for you don't give your power into someone that's not in your body and it used to really frustrate me it's probably best I left nursing really Johnny bit, <laughs> bit mouthy do you know what I mean but I was just sort of like no it's your I say it's your condition but it's certainly your body where it's all going on and you know love it hate it but you know learn about it for sure yeah I mean, like the wolves thing, I thought was brilliant because, you know, hallucinations are scary. But if you can like bring it back to you, it's just well, it's less overwhelming, isn't it? Dude, what sounds so funny to people when they, because people who don't have schizophrenia or who haven't lived with it or don't have a friend or family member with it, they have a very different picture of what it looks like. But for me, when whenever people ask, you know, what was schizophrenia like, I'd say, you know, look at something in your room, like right here in my room, I have a printer. Um, and I would say, all you have to do is just wonder whether that printer is actually there or not. And then that's basically what schizophrenia is with everything. So if you hear something or feel something or, or see something, 
you always have to wonder whether it's there. And when you really start to wonder, like practically, would a printer be on my desk? Have I used that printer before? And you start, oh yes, I, rem I have the receipt for that printer. So I have evidence and proof. Um, it makes it actually easier over time to identify, here's what it is. Wow, I've never thought about it like this. So when you have a dream and everything seems normal in the dream and then like a clown rides by, on a bicycle and you're like, what the heck? Oh, this is a dream. <laughs> That's how you snap out of thinking that your hallucination is real. At least for me, I shouldn't say you. That's how I would snap out of it was I would see something that didn't add up. I'd look at all this context and say, okay, everything in my room makes sense. A wolf? That doesn't make sense. Let's run through some exercises thinking about how practical of an idea it would be for a wolf to be here. And slowly I could kind of debunk it to the point where I would literally look at a wolf that I was hallucinating and go, you're not even real. So shut up, get <laughs> out of here, like out, get out of my room and I'll close the door behind you. Cause you're not even a real thing in the first place. I've had conversations like that. And some people might think that sounds silly, but anyone who's living with a diagnosis right now knows that, depression isn't feeling sad and anxiety isn't feeling worried. It's something much more real and much more visceral. And those conversations, while they might sound silly from the outside, are super powerful when you're in the moment. Yeah. And is it right to say that even if you don't have schizophrenia, even when you're in like depression or anxiety, you still have those things that you can't quite tell what's real and what's not? Mm-hmm. Yeah, even the anxiety thing, like, let's use the nose example that I mentioned earlier. I walk into a room and I, you really think 70 people are looking at your nose? 70? You're saying that if we lined all of them up and put them on a lie detector test one after another and said at 7.03 and 24 seconds, when Johnny Crowder walked in, did you stop and look at their nose? You're saying that 70 people would say yes, and the lie detector test would show that all 70 people looked at your nose in that exact moment, that is extremely unlikely. So I would, that's how I talk to myself when I experience that depression or anxiety. I kind of grill myself, interrogate myself, like that's what you really think? That can't be what you really think. That's so, imp it is more likely that everybody sneezed at the exact same moment when you walked in. <laughs> I love it. I love how you almost having fun with it I don't think you probably are it sounds you know like everyday <laughs> challenge but you know when you can turn it around and find some kind of lightness in the dark I think it's just an amazing tool to have with you yeah some, sometimes I would say so this is why it's important to separate yourself from it because if you're talking to yourself it can be tough but if you turn if you do that interrogation on your anxiety and you say okay anxiety that's what you really think. That's what you actually really think in your heart of hearts. That can't be real. When you can talk to that thought that way, it creates this kind of, it creates this confidence in you that you can always put your diagnosis in its place. Like OCD, for example, um, I couldn't step on cracks for a long time. I couldn't sit near windows. I couldn't touch doorknobs. There were so many different things that I could and couldn't do. And I remember having a conversation like this with myself around stepping on cracks where I, I believed that if I stepped on a crack, it would 
this is going to sound ridiculous to anyone who's lived without a diagnosis, but I used to believe that if I was going to step on a crack, a there was a tiny blade, kind of like a, a razor blade or a knife or something in each of those cracks that would hurt only my feet. And it would hurt, it would come, for some reason, I thought it would cut right through the sole of my shoe and into the bottom of my foot. That was a real fear that I had. Now, to you, that obviously sounds really unlikely. Who the heck put those blades there? Why would they not hurt anybody else's feet? There's so many logical questions that you can ask to debunk that. And that's what I would have to do. So all the questions that just popped into your head, like, wait, what would be their motivate? Even if someone could do that and what kind of blade pops up and what is it an invisible blade? Like so many questions, all those questions that popped into your head, I would ask myself. And over time, it became more and more difficult to answer those questions until I could arrive at the realization that it's just simply illogical and impossible for that to be the true case. So I love how you're talking to yourself. Is that a tool you learn from psychology? You don't need to have the psychology degree. Like I said, it's just something you learn and it works. I don't, you know, I think I talked to myself my whole life. I don't, I remember, honestly, it might be because I was kind of like, I, f I was alone a lot as a kid because um, my brothers were kind of on a team. And then I was kind of the odd man out a lot. So I'd spend a lot of time in my room writing, playing guitar, painting, drawing. So I would spend time in my room talking to myself out loud. And I think it's just something that I slowly started judging myself less and less for. Where now I'll talk to myself out loud and I don't judge myself at all for it because I know how healthy it can be. But I didn't start that as a kid knowing that there's a psychological benefit. I just learned 20 years later that there is one. <laughs> <laughs> so, when, so you said it didn't happen like that. You know, you set out talking to yourself. It's not the realization later came to, but you had mentioned like painting and drawing and music. And you also mentioned like the tools you've used to get to where you are now. And that's the creative process. So you're always doing things before you knew like the self-talk and the creative processes. And here you are like, you know, decades later and there's your kind of healing tools, which I love. Yeah. I picture it like, um, you know how, if your body, if you have a craving for red meat, that your body might be low in iron. Yeah. Sometimes I think that that's how creativity came into my life. Like my body, my mind, my soul, my spirit, my heart, I really needed some sort of outlet. Um, but I didn't know that. I was just like, I really want to draw. I really want to paint. Much like when your body really needs iron, you might be like, well, I could go for a steak right now. Um, it feels like it's just a desire, but deeper down, there's a need. There's a physiological need that needs to be met. I love that because I always think, you know, we're always looking externally for answers, but I leave I truly believe that, you know, what we really need is inside us. The answers are within us, but we don't always stop and listen to what it's trying to tell us. <laughs> we never listen to ourselves. <laughs> it's, that's why you should talk to yourself because you never listen to yourself. So you might as well talk. <laughs> then, you hear, <laughs> then you might hear what you've been trying to say this whole time. Bless you. So you've really worked on yourself. And I love the fact you're a mental health advocate because this, as I said earlier, like you've walked the walk and talked the talk. So what, is it that people come to you? What's the biggest, you know, say, pain point or the biggest issue that causes mental health nowadays? I, 
That's an awesome question. Thank you. <laughs> I don't have a, a data backed answer. I don't have a, like a proven answer, but I'll say that the first thing that comes to mind is, um, social disconnection is probably a pretty big factor here. Um, either, and, and I mean that in two ways. So either you don't have a lot of healthy social connections in your life and that can foster kind of like an echo chamber where unresolved issues can persist or you are in a social circle, but the connections are not strong enough for you to actually share your true self with your friends and family members. So there's, there's like type A where you're, where you don't have a lot of healthy connections or there's type B where you have a lot of connections, but they're not healthy enough for you to be vulnerable and authentic. And then that creates the echo chamber. So I'd say ultimately it's, it's this feeling that if people actually knew who we really were, they wouldn't like us anymore. And then that turns, you know, something, I'm trying to think of a good way to word it. I mean, picture like a, a, a an air filtration system, like dirty air comes in, gets filtered and then gets popped out the other side. But if you feel like people won't like the air that comes out, then you like turn that little faucet. And now the dirty air is the clean air is the dirty air is the clean air is the dirty air. And you kind of like close this system to where it's all dirty air. I feel like that's what people do. We think, oh, the clean air that comes out of my system won't be clean enough for somebody else. So I'll just keep it inside my little system. And I don't know if that's a great analogy, but I know that if you close yourself off from other people and you convince yourself that that's not a big deal, it probably is, and it's contributing to, um, it's likely contributing to some of your mental and emotional health concerns. That would explain a lot because my background is nursing. I worked a lot in end of life and there was like five repeating life lessons I used to see. And one was um, connect to something bigger than yourself. So it's like, whether that is like your family or feeling of service in community or like yourself, like finding faith and a spiritual aspect in your life. And it was always the key thing, you know, this was the words from the dying. These were people that found it all too late, but it is connection, as you say, but if the connection is weak, it, it doesn't work, does it? And that's the same if it's your mobile phone, you know, you're trying yeah. to charge it and the connection's not strong. But if we're with people, and we're not connecting, then we're not really living, we're just existing. But I will say, I want to encourage people. So even though this might sound like it negates what I just said, I also think that you should have connections. So even if you can't, you know, you're checking out at the grocery store and there's someone, there's a cashier, they might not say, hey, tell me your whole life story and let's spend five hours talking <laughs> about your childhood. But that connection is still important. That little micro interaction that you have with a stranger, just making eye contact and being cordial and seeing that another real living person acknowledges you and you acknowledge them. That's powerful. So I'm not saying that if you have a bunch of acquaintances to drop them. I'm saying if you have a bunch of acquaintances, you're halfway there. Just make those people your friends in real life, like, like double down with those people and create connections. So I just want to clarify, I'm not saying acquaintances are bad. 
I still think everybody needs those micro interactions. I'm just saying, don't let that be all for you. Yeah. I think we sort of, you know, you have like friends and you have acquaintances and things like that, but it's almost like you need to be courageous and be a little bit more vulnerable, maybe share a little bit more about yourself you know, to deepen those connections. But I do love like the little snippets of conversations. Years ago, I worked in a supermarket and I was so happy, Johnny, like seriously, <laughs> so happy as a checkout chick, as we call them here. I was there and I was just like, you know, these people would come through all different ages. I'd be scanning the bread and the tomatoes, I know, marrow fat peas, whatever. And it's just, how's your day? How's your week been? And I loved that, that little snippet. I didn't want the deep things. Do you know what I mean? It's very maybe my soul wanted deeper things because I then did nursing for decades but um at the time I loved the simplicity like hello how are you next and then mm -hmm. I went into nursing where it was those deep connections what's life about you know what the life lessons so as you say there are different kinds of connections and it's probably more important to have small connections than no connections where you feel invisible again which I always think is really risky in mental health when you don't feel visible yeah. I also think that sometimes you just have to take the first step. Like, you know, you wish other people would open up to you, but you're not really opening up to people. Like sometimes you just have to be that person that shares and then see how it goes. Like you have to step out on that rickety bridge and be like, you know, in an interaction like that, where someone's like, you know, a coworker is like, how was your weekend? You're like, honestly, I've been really worried about my dad because he was diagnosed with cancer a couple of years ago and I had to go visit him. And it's just really like emotionally complicated because we never even had a good relationship, you know? And then that person, you never know, that person could go, yeesh, leave me out of that. Or they could go, yeah, my mom got diagnosed with breast cancer in 2017 and it changed the whole dynamic of our family. And all of a sudden you have a friend and you never know if you don't roll the dice. Like you, sometimes you do have to be that person to just share a little bit, just a sentence or two and see if they take the bait. Because if they do, you guys might provide so much relief and comfort to each other, but you never know if you don't try. I think that's beautiful. I really do. I truly believe, even with my positive, my annoying positivity, <laughs> I just think that everyone's fighting a battle you know, and we don't know that we just think it's us and we sort of isolate ourselves, which doesn't help connections. We tend to isolate, you know, we don't want to share because it's just us. You know, it's almost like a secondary gain. Like if we take one problem and we're holding on to this problem, but, you know, just share because someone's going through something. They've Dude, got to be. You're, you're totally calling me out right now. So earlier today, I went to a car meet which is basically where a bunch of people with fancy cars, like supercars and hypercars, sports cars, all these people go and park in a parking lot and they like clean their cars and then they're all shiny and everyone's walking around taking pictures. And I love it because it's one of the only COVID friendly things that you can do in America right now because it's all outside and everyone's far apart. And it's, you know, it's kind of like being in a car museum, only it's outside in a huge parking lot. And I saw this guy drive by. Oh, it's a British car. It's the McLaren 720S. It's well, that's just posh, isn't it? That is. <laughs> yeah, it's one of my favorite, and it's hundreds of thousands of dollars. And this thing was brand new, bright orange and black, carbon fiber, everything, top down. And this guy drives by, 
in this car with a big shiny gold watch. And he was super handsome designer sunglasses. And he must've been like 40 something. I just thought, I thought in my head, that guy must have no problems in his whole life. He must be just in this perfect stasis where he's got it figured out. And then I thought, what an ugly, awful thought that I had to think that there's an, there's someone on this planet that doesn't have problems. Like that is such a lonely, sad, frustrated thought that popped into my head. And I go, no, everybody on this planet is either coming out of something difficult. They are in the middle of something difficult, or they're about to go into something difficult. So we all know that life is difficult. So just because someone has more money than you, or you think is better looking than you with, which I always think is up for debate because that's such a subjective measure, but just because someone is different than you doesn't mean that they have a perfect life because there's no such thing. And I just caught myself when I thought that, and I thought next time I see a guy, I want to talk to him. And I want to, I want to see if I can provide some sort of relief to him and maybe learn something in return because there is no person who's perfect. And I need to get over that prejudice in myself where I look at other people and think I've had it worse, you know? Yeah. And it, people do judge. I mean, we have four children, but I've had a horrific fertility journey. Absolutely horrific. And I speak quite open about it now, but I still get triggered. And this is life. Do you know what I mean? Like our family's complete, we completed six years ago, but we lost more children than what we have. It's been, you know, a real battle. But people still say to me, you know, like, well, it's okay for you because you've got four children. You don't know what I'm going through. And I'm like, mm, wow. and it still triggers me. And I think I've healed because my family's complete. But as you said, if you're not in it now, you've been through it or it's coming and we shouldn't judge others because it just hurts everyone's story, doesn't it? It kind of dampens it down. And it's sad for, for the person who, who said that to you. It's sad for them because they put themselves in a silo. They think, oh, you, you haven't figured out I'm the one who's hurting. And I, that's what I thought when I see this gentleman drive by. I think, oh, you have a perfect life. I'm the one who's going through something. And that's sad because I made myself alone. And the woman who said that to you made herself alone. She didn't have to. Like if we just would be open and listen and not judge, we'd find out that we're not in this alone, that there are tons of people who would be able to relate to us, but we don't allow that. We like, we put up a wall because we're afraid that someone won't be able to relate without asking, can you relate to that? Do you kind of know what I'm talking about? And allowing the other person to, to rise to the occasion. Yeah. And I think we are all so connected and yes, kind of in a spiritual oneness, but also like when you have loss, my second book's called Good Grief, and it's about loss, but it's not just like a loved one dying. It's what I call mini deaths. So if you've lost your job or finances, your mm. purpose in life, even if your dreams have fallen apart, it's a loss. And in that loss, we're all connected. We're no different, really. Do you know what I mean? We're all born into the world. We're all going out the same exit door, <laughs> to put it <laughs> I nicely. Like <laughs> you I know, like that. it doesn't matter how much money you make, how much you hurt in the middle. We're all going to go out the same way. We're all going to die. But we all hurt. We all experience loss. And I think we need to be kinder to ourselves, kinder to each other. I really do. 100%. Yeah. So, as we say that everyone's going through a battle 
or they're still healing from a past battle. You've gone through so much. So what one thing could people do today? What one positive change could they create today? So I've prefaced a lot of things that I've said in this interview so far with this might sound silly, but um, so I'm going to do it again one last time. This might sound silly, but start walking. It sounds way too simple. It sounds totally unrelated, but I am telling you firsthand, if you can just walk with a sense of purpose, you walk to get the mail, you walk around. I walk around the inside of my house during COVID. I have a 900 square foot apartment, half of which I can't even walk into because it's not mine. So if, you know, I have maybe four or 500 square feet that's shared, like my bedroom, the living room, kitchen, bathroom. Um, and I'll just walk around or I'll walk behind my house or I'll walk down the street. I'm telling you, if you can get more oxygen to your brain, you will process information better. You will make better decisions. You will feel more rejuvenated and relaxed. You will sleep better. You will stress less. I am telling you probably half of the pressure of the strain that your brain is feeling right now, whether it's via anxiety or, you know, depression or bipolar or, or loss or whatever addiction, I encourage you, and this is not a panacea, so it's not going to magically fix everything, but I encourage you to try getting more oxygen to your brain, whatever that looks like. Stretching is another good one, but I'm a big fan of walking because it feels, you know, if you're trying to process something really complicated psychologically and you're not giving your brain a lot of oxygen, it's kind of like trying to climb Mount Everest on an empty stomach. Like you need fuel, your brain needs oxygen. So I don't even know, I'm sure there's someone, there's a doctor listening right now who's like, that's not how your brain works. I don't care, okay? I'm not a doctor, you're the doctor. You come on here and correct me. I'm sure there's something scientifically incorrect with what I just said, but I'm telling you empirically, um, when COVID hit, I started walking a lot because obviously you can't, you know, the basketball courts were shut down. So I couldn't go there. couldn't go to the gym. So I just started walking and I'm telling you when I feel that my brain is getting more oxygen, I can process what I'm going through more efficiently. I make more sound decisions. Um, so I encourage you, if you are listening to this and you don't know what first step to take and you need something easy and simple that you can implement immediately, just walk more, give your brain more oxygen. I love that. And if the doctor wants to disagree, I'm going to disagree with him. <laughs> I'm just like, yes, what Johnny said. Yes. <laughs> yeah, we just need to. It's it's sad that we don't give ourselves what we need to get through what we're going through. Um, we don't give ourselves fuel or assets or tools and like that's why I work in mental health advocacy. That's why I created a mental health tool. That's why I speak at, at um, schools and hospitals and prisons and churches because we make it 
we make that first step so hard in our mind. We, we make it this huge, scary thing. We picture the top of Mount Everest. And we're like, how the heck am I ever going to get there? And I'm like, don't freaking worry about that right now. Like, don't put on your boots. I'm here to help you learn how to tie your boots because that's a big deal. You have to do that before you even start climbing the mountain anyway. You know, the first step is, the a lot of people say the first step is the hardest. And I think that statement is only true if we make it true. Wow. <laughs> I'm just like, yes, yeah, I always say about when people create positive changes, like say they're unhappy with the way they look. You know, it's not about right the end result. It's like, what can you do today? And it is just that, and, you know, if people are saying, what can I do? It is just that first step. But I love the fact, I tried to say, like, take that first step, but you said, you know, it's only hard if you make it hard. And I'm just like, I've never thought of it like that. I just think, Take the step. <laughs> Dude, there's there's merit to all of these different perspectives. And honestly, I disagree my, with myself all the time. Like <laughs> on on Monday, I'll be like, the first step is the hardest. And you got to just talk yourself into it, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And on Wednesday, I'm like, how can you pull yourself up by your bootstraps? Like that's physically impossible. And then by Friday, I'm like, well, the important part is just getting your boots on. That's, that's what we should really be focusing on. What first step is the wrong question to take? We need to, the first question is, where are my boots? Yeah. That, is, that is the first most important question. Otherwise, it doesn't matter where you're headed because you won't be equipped. Yeah, I absolutely love it. I mean, I know you've said throughout the interview about, you know, this sounds silly, but I actually think it sounded so powerful. And I'd use this word. I never know it's a real word or not, Johnny. I think it's doable. And I don't have doable as a word, but we're going to use it, it is. today, is it? Yeah. <laughs> if it's not doable, not a real word, it will be by Wednesday. So <laughs> <laughs> we'll get it published. Johnny Crowder, you've been an absolute pleasure. I honestly think this is going to resonate with so many people. I just love your honesty, the way you talk to yourself, the mirror work, the way you can sort of contradict yourself. I just think you're an absolute legend. I truly do. That's so awesome. Thank you for the kind words. And last, last thing I want to say, like plug myself quickly. Um, I'm in a metal band called prison. So if you like rock or metal, um, the band is called prison. We have a record called still alive. So if you're on Spotify or Apple music or YouTube, I'm sure you could find it. Um, I run a mental health resource called cope notes. So if you want to use a uh, daily mental health support resource, it's all via text message. You can go to copenotes.com and learn about that. I have a TED Talk that you can just look up on YouTube if you search Johnny Crowder TED Talk. I'm sure you'll find it. And the last thing I want to say is um, if you need to get in touch with me about something, I encourage you, there's a contact form on the Cope Notes website. So if you're like, oh, I need to ask him something or, you know, I need to get in touch with him or whatever. If you go to copenotes.com and scroll to the bottom, there's a contact button and that's how you can get in touch with me. And those are all my plugs. That's oh, brilliant. Actually, there's, not, the there's last, another one. Go on. <laughs> you know what I should say? Because this is a podcast. Um, the last thing I should say is there is a Cope Notes podcast. So wherever you're listening to this, you can go, you can look up the Cope Notes podcast and find our show. And we talk about mental health and how people manage stress and pressure, um, how to be vulnerable, all sorts of cool stuff. So I encourage you to take a listen. There you go. Just what Johnny said. <laughs> <laughs> Johnny, as I said, you're an absolute legend. Thank you so much for being here today. 
Thank you, my friend. Good to meet you. If you enjoyed today's episode, please make sure you subscribe and leave a positive review. If you would like to create your own positive changes, you can buy Positive Changes, a self-kick book from all online book retailers or from ShellyFKnight.com. If you need a dollop of positivity until the next episode, come like and follow us over on Facebook at Shelly F. Knight, Life Goes On. As always, I've been Shelly F. Knight and you've been amazing. <laughs>